You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. A look at the state-based cyber actor the Australian government is concerned about. Some signs of Chinese retaliation for Five Eyes' skepticism of Huawei. Johannes Ulrich explains malware triggering multiple signatures in anti-malware products. Our guest is Jeff White, author of Crime.com, on how he tracked down the creator of The Love Bug. And an alert about the possibility of some COVID-19-themed fraud from The Lazarus Group. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 19th, 2020. Australia's Prime Minister Morrison has said that Australia is under massive and sustained cyber attack. The Wall Street Journal quotes the Prime Minister as saying, We know it is a sophisticated state-based cyber actor because of the scale and nature of the targeting and the tradecraft used. He added that all levels of government in most economic sectors are among the targets. The actor may be sophisticated, but most observers aren't moving from that to a conclusion that the attacks themselves are advanced or complicated. To judge from yesterday's Australian Signals Directorate advisory, the attacks for the most part hit known vulnerabilities with copy-and-paste open-source proof-of-concept exploit code used against public-facing sections of the infrastructure. For the most part, the state-based cyber actors are going after a remote code execution vulnerability in unpatched versions of Telerik UI. In other cases, they are chasing a deserialization vulnerability in Microsoft Internet Information Services, a 2019 SharePoint vulnerability, or a 2019 Citrix vulnerability. When that approach fails, the attackers resort to familiar spear phishing, The ASD warned that the spear phishing has taken several familiar forms, including links to credential harvesting websites, emails with links to malicious files or with a malicious file directly attached, links prompting users to grant Office 365 OAuth tokens to the actor, use of email tracking services to identify the email opening and lure click-through events. The state-based actor has shown some talent for conducting reconnaissance of target networks to identify vulnerable services, and ASD thinks the actor may be assembling and maintaining a list of public-facing services so it can hit them quickly after new vulnerabilities are released and before the targets get around to patching them. They're also pretty good at identifying development, test, and orphaned services that tend to be overlooked or even forgotten by the organizations that own them. These activities do argue for a good degree of intelligence and sound management. If we understand sophisticated to refer to a solid understanding of how to service targets, as opposed to the more usual connotation of exotically crafted, never-before-seen malware, then perhaps the Prime Minister has a point. In that sense, the state-based group can indeed be called sophisticated. 
So, okay, we keep saying state-based group because that's what Mr. Morrison calls them. But straight up, friends, we're obviously talking about China. The prime minister has refused to be drawn on attribution, but he's generally believed to be describing a Chinese government campaign. ZDNet quotes think tank sources to the effect that this particular frog has been boiling for years, which raises the question of why the prime minister would choose this moment to issue his warning. Other sources, for the most part former officials, are telling the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the campaign may represent payback for Australia's hard line on Huawei. So there seems to be a mutual dance of deniable accusation going on here. China hasn't yet commented on Prime Minister Morrison's press conference, but it's denied involvement in recent high-profile attacks on Australian institutions, including Parliament. Those denials haven't been generally believed. Perhaps they're not intended to be believed. The operations walk and quack like Chinese operations, and as the Wall Street Journal points out, you can hide your footprints, but sometimes it's useful to leave the tracks out there for the world to see. The Prime Minister appears to have two motivations in making his statement. First, he's offering China a veiled warning. Second, he's also interested in changing behavior in his own government agencies. After all, for crying out loud, will you please get serious about keeping your systems patched and under control? There's a state-based panda pawing at you. There may be some other Chinese payback for Five Eyes' treatment of Huawei. Two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, were arrested 18 months ago, shortly after Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou was detained in Vancouver on an American bank fraud beef. The Wall Street Journal reports that the two have now been formally charged with espionage. Michael Kovrid, a Canadian diplomat on leave to work with the International Crisis Group, was charged with probing into state secrets and intelligence on behalf of foreign actors. Michael Spavor, an entrepreneur, was accused of probing into and illegally providing state secrets to foreign actors, according to municipal prosecutors in Beijing and Dangdong. Both of the Canadian men were in China in connection with their interest in North Korea. Mr. Kovrig was preparing a report on the DPRK, and Mr. Spavor ran the not-for-profit Pactu Cultural Exchange, which facilitated travel to North Korea. Ms. Meng, currently out on bail in Vancouver, is facing the slow process of extradition to the U.S. A recent Canadian court decision made it more likely that she'll be sent stateside, but her American court date, if it should ever arrive, still lies in the indefinite future. North Korea's Lazarus Group is said to be preparing a large-scale fishing campaign against targets in South Korea, Singapore, Japan, India, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The countries all have put large COVID-19 economic relief programs in place, and ZDNet reports that Pyongyang's COVID-19 fish bait is expected to serve financial fraud. ZDNet credits CyFirma with the relevant threat research. SingCert today posted a warning for Singapore businesses. North Korean cyber operations in general, and those of the Lazarus Group in particular, have tended to concentrate on either espionage or financial gain with an occasional attempt at influence. The influence attempts generally haven't proceeded very happily, but Pyongyang has shown that it has the chops to conduct both espionage and fraud. So businesses, beware. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Jeff White. He's an investigative journalist based in the UK and author of the book Crime.com, which will be published in August. Our conversation centers on his globetrotting investigation to find the creator of the Lovebug computer virus, 20 years after its initial release. The Lovebug virus was unleashed in 2000, May 2000. It went around the world. It infected tens of millions of computers, it's estimated. And the person behind it, the person who did all of this was never actually convicted. It was never settled who who unleashed it, who created it, and so on. There were some suspicions at the time, but the whole thing was a big question mark. So I thought that was worth looking into. And also the other thing is, for me, the love bug kind of sums up the big thing about cybersecurity. You know, it's not necessarily about computers and, and code and hardware and software and so on. It's about people. You know, the reason the love bug worked was because everybody wants love. And so when they received an email that looked like a love letter, which is what the love bug did, they answered it. So for me, it was, it was the perfect sort of social engineering, psychological, people-focused attack. And I just thought it was a, it was a great place to start talking about cybersecurity. Can you take us back, uh, remind us, you know, back around the year 2000, what sorts of protections would people typically have in place in, in terms of backups and, uh, you know, the things that we, we think of as being routine these days? What was the state of things back in 2000? Well, well you know, cybersecurity was on the agenda in 2000. It wasn't that there hadn't been viruses. There'd been one a couple of previous, uh, a couple of years previously uh, to this called the Morris worm, which again spread from computer to computer. Um, companies had antivirus software. The issue with uh, the love bug, and another reason this highlighted some issues early on in cybersecurity, was that because of the way the virus was written in those days, if you got it and downloaded it, yeah, you might get infected, but then you've got a copy of it. So people started deliberately trying to get infected so they could grab a copy of the virus, reformat it, rework it, and re-release it. And so some of the antivirus uh, software that was looking out for something like Lovebug would get caught out because the next iteration of Lovebug that somebody had tweaked very slightly would get through its defences. So that was the sort of setup at the time. And in terms of you know backups of information, some companies were switched on to that and, and had sort of disaster recovery, you know, as it's called in the trade. But um, a lot of companies wouldn't have had that. They wouldn't have seen the seen the effect of that. And certainly the idea of an email being able to spread and spread so fast and, and, and destroy everything in its path, uh, that, that came completely out of left field for a lot of people. So it really was, it's a perfect storm. So how did you begin your journey now? I mean, decades after it began, uh, where did you begin? 
Well, there were lots of rumours about who was behind the love bug. So the police um, investigators were looking at where the passwords, the stolen passwords, were being sent to. And they discovered that it was an, an email address that had been registered in the Philippines. It didn't take them long to work out an apartment in the Philippines that the email address was registered to. So they pitched up there and they found some people living in the apartment and they pretty soon discovered that someone connected to them was um, a computer science student at a nearby university called Onel de Gutzman. Um, also implicated in this was Onel de Gutzman's classmate, a guy called Michael Buen. Now, the difficult problem for the investigators in the Philippines at the time was that there was no law against computer hacking in 2000 in the Philippines, something that it seems that Michael Buen, Onel de Gutzman and their buddies knew only too well because they were part of a kind of <laughs> underground community of students who were creating viruses and experimenting with viruses and in some cases leaking them. So when the investigators found an elder Gutzman, they couldn't prosecute him. There was a forum, a Filipino language forum, in which somebody said, oh yes, I saw an elder Gutzman. And this was, I think, in 2016-ish, 2015, working at this particular market on a mobile phone stall. You know, he's a local hero. And so I thought, well, that's the best lead I've got. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's go to Manila find the market, find the mobile phone stall, and, you know, who knows? So I started going around. I thought, well, how can I find this guy? And I knew the, the photo wouldn't be any good because the photo was 20 years old. So I, I wrote his name down on a piece of paper, and I went from stall to stall just showing it to people at random. And sure enough, um, he turned up, and we went for a coffee, and I, I expected that I'd have to sort of tease the information out of him, and I'd have to sort of put the evidence to him to a point where he couldn't deny it. But actually... He, he admitted it straight away. He not only admitted that he wrote the virus and unleashed it, he, he said that it was just him and that his, his colleague, Michael Buen, his classmate, Michael Buen, was nothing to do with it. So I was able finally to clear up, A, who had unleashed the virus, but B, exonerate the guy over whom a question mark has hung for, for the last 20 years. In the ensuing years, Onel de Gutzman didn't go back to university. He was at college at the time. He was a computer science student. And, you know... I spoke to some of his colleagues, people around the same time at the same college, and they've gone on to really good careers. Onel de Gutzman didn't. He didn't go back. He didn't graduate. He had to lie low for a couple of years. He didn't touch a computer for a couple of years. And the stall that he's working on now, it has to be said, he's not... I mean, he's in his element. He's surrounded by voltmeters and screwdrivers and disassembled phones. And, you know, mm. it's a sort of techie's den that, they, that he, he probably loves. But I can't help thinking that his life could have turned out very differently had that one thing not happened back in the 4th of May 2000, had he not pressed send on that one email. Our thanks to Jeff White for joining us. His book, Crime.com, will be published in August. There's an extended version of our conversation up on CyberWire Pro in the interview selects. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it is always great to have you back. Um, uh, you and your team have been tracking some interesting uh, things with some malware that's been uh, doing some, some triggering in, in some anti-malware software. Fill us in on the details here. Yeah, this is an experiment that one of our handlers, uh, the Americans, uh, ran. And uh, what he looked at is, hey, uh, what if a malware actually contains more than one malicious signatures? And uh, what he did here as a test is he used Mimikatz. If you're not familiar with Mimikatz, it's software that's often used by the bad guys, but also by penetration testers to steal uh, password hashes from memory. So it's well-known, well-recognized, pretty much all anti-malware will flag it as malicious. So he took this tool and then he added a little string to it uh, called the ACAR string. This is a very specific string that's used to test antivirus. So uh, whenever a file contains this string, usually in the beginning, it will flag it as malicious, but say, hey, this is a test file. So what he did is he added this ACAR string to Mimikatz, and then check what will happen. What will antivirus tell me? Will it tell me this is Mimikatz? Will it tell me that this is a test file that's harmless? Uh, mm. Or will it tell me both? And what he found is that actually much antivirus or many antivirus uh, tools will flag it now as ACAR, as a harmless test. Execution may still get blocked here in this case, uh, but an analyst looking at the logs, looking over a system may say, hey, you know, uh, this is just a harmless test file. Uh, maybe someone, you know, ran a test. Uh, this is not something that will cause any damage. And they may now ignore this alert. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So what do we suppose that the anti-malware tools are, uh, you know, they, they see if they, fl- they flag something and then they stop, they don't look any further? Correct. That's uh, what's happening. And many of them only have the capability to flag one alert per file. Uh, This has happened also, for example, with network intrusion detection systems. If you have an attack, for example, against a web server, the attacker within one session is launching multiple attacks where only like the first three or four often are being detected. So if the first three and four are the attacker just probing and trying to figure out what the web server is vulnerable for, but then later the exploit is actually being sent and successful, uh, the tool may miss uh, that very important fact. And hmm. Sometimes it's configuration of the tools, uh, but it would be nice if the tool would yeah, scan the entire file, not just stop at the first uh, hit, and maybe rank the signatures where they say, hey, this is that this is Mimikatz, actually more important than this is ACAR. So uh, let's, if you can only send one one alert, let's send the more severe alerts. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, so what are your recommendations here It's in terms of folks protecting themselves? Well, always second guess your tools. Uh, tools can be wrong. And this is a sad uh, truth in this business and something that's often overlooked. A lot of analysts, a lot of security people do overly rely on their tools. Understand how your tools work, experiment with them, and know the limitations. Uh, this is so important in this business and something that's often overlooked where someone just you know um, reads a quick blog post to figure out how a tool works and doesn't really bother us to, to ask the hard questions and dive in deeper. So should the folks who are making these anti-malware tools, should they be on alert to maybe up their game as well? Uh, yeah, definitely. They, they should be aware that... Uh, particular piece of malware may trigger uh, multiple signatures. 
And uh, this could even happen sometimes, you know, sort of accidentally where an attacker will just bundle multiple tools in one file. I've seen this uh, quite often. Uh, as an analyst, I need to know that this is more than one particular piece of malware. Uh, another sort of problem that I often see is that the analyst then goes back and cleans up the system and only removes the one piece of malware that was actually uh, triggered on. But that fact of cleaning up is always dangerous and highly discouraged, but we, we know life. You want to get back into business, uh, you want to you don't want to restore the system from backups that you may or may not have. Uh, so a lot of folks are a little bit careless there and uh, antivirus tools often give them the wrong signals. Yeah, and the bad guys can take advantage of that. Correct, yes. Yeah. All right, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.